morning, let's see if we can deal with uh, Nehemiah chapter uh, 3 and 4. Let me start by confessing some things to you and maybe finding a connection with you. Uh, I'm very interested in doing the things that I want to do. And I'm not very interested in doing the things I don't want to do. And that's the way most of us are wired. It's the way I'm wired. I'm not interested in scrapbooking. I'm interested in watching a football game. Uh, So here's the deal. There are certain passages of Scripture that I struggle with. Because certain passages of Scripture are asking me to do things that I don't want to do. And now I've got some decisions to make. Now I've got some internal conflict. For example, when I'm reading over in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is challenging his disciples, and I count myself and I count you to be among that band. And he says to us, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now that sounds like a difficult task. It does not sound like a pleasant Saturday watching football. Sounds like doing something I don't want to do, something that's going to be difficult to do, something that may involve pain or conflict, but certainly something that involves me being interested in something God's interested in or something I might not be naturally interested in. He calls it taking up your cross and following me. So one of the things that I have learned and you have learned is that becoming like Christ, which is the word for Christian, Becoming a Christian, becoming like Christ, is the process of moving yourself out of the center of your life, which that sounds really weird, doesn't it? Moving Bobby out of the center of Bobby's life, because you know the world would say it's my life, but moving self out of the center of my life and moving Christ into the center of my life. Now, let's just state some of the obvious things. When you are the center of your life, we call that what kind of life? Self-centered. That doesn't sound nearly as nice, does it? Self-centered. I don't want to be self-centered. In other words, to follow Christ, by nature I'm self-centered. I've got to move self out of the way, move Christ into the focal point of my life. He becomes the central focus, and I become secondary. Now I want to ask you to self-assess right here at the beginning of the message and be honest with yourself. Don't answer out loud, but in your heart, answer your self-assessment a question this morning. Would you say that your life is self-centered or Christ-centered? Do you do what you want to do or do you do what Christ has called you to do that's not really an easy question is it? that's tough because I, I'm going to just speak for myself and maybe project on you a little bit it's probably a mix isn't it I do some of what I want to do because I want to do it and yeah there are times when I do what God wants me to do and I'm clearly listening to his voice and following his will now Uh, Nehemiah teaches some very practical lessons for us. 
One of the things that Nehemiah teaches us is it teaches us how to accomplish very big things, big objectives, but how to accomplish them at the family level. Uh, now, those of you who are business owners or in, in management, upper management, uh, you'll understand very clearly what I'm about to say. The way you accomplish big tasks is by taking big tasks and dividing them into small tasks and assigning out the small tasks to different groups and leaders. And therefore, through that style of management, you accomplish the big thing that you're trying to do. What's the old, there's an old business saying, how do you, how do you eat an elephant? What is it? One bite at a time. Take the big thing, divide it into little things, assign them to groups, and everybody who is responsible knocks out those little tasks, and before long, you're accomplishing very big tasks. Their big task uh, that Nehemiah is going to try to take on is he's got a city that looks like it's in modern-day Ukraine. It's totally bombed out, totally in rubble, totally in ruin, just, just complete destruction and devastation. And in those days, the ancient cities have a wall around them for protection. And so he's going to try to put the city back together uh, for God to reestablish Israel in the land and give them a place where a community and a civilization can, again, start thriving and flourishing where kids are safe to play in the streets and all of this kind of thing. So the first thing he's going to do is try to build a big wall that used to be there. The foundation of the wall is still there. He's going to try to build the wall again around the city. So he divides the wall, going all the way around Jerusalem, into sections, small sections. And each person who has come back in the immigration, now three waves, each person and each family has a role and a responsibility on that wall. Moms and dads are going to lay bricks. Sons and daughters are going to work right beside them. We're all going to get our hands dirty. Think about that. Think about being there right now. Say, what glamorous thing are we going to do for Jesus? We're going to sift through the rubble and pull out some stones and mix cement and shovel dirt and, and uh, 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 grind the, the soot off the burned stones. And we're, we're all going to get our hands dirty for God, basically. We're going to work side by side, family by family on the wall. Now, this is the entire third chapter, which I'm going to summarize really quickly this morning. Let me read some of the third chapter of Nehemiah. It's about families finding their place in the work of the Lord. Nehemiah 3.8. A lot of names, so be patient with me. Uziel, the son of Hariah, one of the goldsmiths. Now that's his vocation. He's a goldsmith, not a bricklayer. One of the goldsmiths repaired the next section. And Hanani, one of the perfume makers, he repaired the next section of the wall. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Verse 9, Repiah, son of Hur, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, is a politician. He, he repaired the next section. Adjoining this, Jediah, the son of Harumah, made repairs opposite his house. A very important statement. And Hattush, son of Hashbaniah, Hash, Hashab, Hashabniah, Hashabniah, made repairs next to him. Malkijah, son of Harim, and Hashub, son of Pahath-Mohab, repaired another section to the Tower of the Ovens. Shalom, son of Halohesh, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, another ruler, politician, repaired the next section of the wall. 
with the help of who? With the help of his daughters. Nehemiah 3.22, the repairs next to him were made by the priests from the surrounding region. Beyond them, Benjamin and Hashub made repairs where? In front of their house. And next to them, Azariah, son of Messiah, the son of Ananiah, made repairs beside his house. Look at verse 28, Nehemiah 3.28. And above the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Emmer, made repairs opposite of his house. And next to him, Shemaiah, uh, the son of Shechaniah, the guard of the east gate, he made repairs. And next to him, Hananiah, son of Shelemiah, and Hanuan, the sixth son of Zalaph, repaired another section. And then next to him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, made repairs opposite his living quarters. I think you've got the picture, don't you? You say, who's going to build the wall? Everyone is going to build the wall. You say, where are they going to build? Well, it looks like they're building opposite their house. There are pharmacists, if you read this long chapter of names. There are pharmacists, there are perfume makers, there are goldsmiths, there are priests, there are rulers, there are moms, there are dads, there are sons, there are daughters, there are grandmothers, there are grandfathers. Everyone is engaged in the mission of God. And they engaged in the mission of God family by family, everyone finding their place in the work of God. They started at their own house where they lived, found the nearest piece of wall to their house, and couldn't park themselves at that section of wall. near. The, they started at their house, and they just began to work outward. And this family worked outward till it met the Yancey family, and the Yancey family worked out from their house until they met the Smallwood family, and the Smallwood family worked out from their house till they met the Webster family, and the Webster family worked out from their house until... You see how this thing works. They just started right here, and everybody began to do the work of the Lord, and eventually they're going to be holding hands, is what you can figure out, right? This wall is going to start getting connected up, my bricks to your bricks, before too long. So, now there's a lot of spiritual Im implications here. I don't want to over-apply, but I also want to make several principal applications this morning. I think it'd be a great season for us as a church family together with your family and for you to ask your husband or to ask your wife or to ask your father or to ask your mother or to ask your sons or to ask your daughters and gather as a family and say to your family what part does God want us to have in his mission at Cornerstone we know what the mission is what part does God want us to have as a family in the mission of our church community doing what God has called us to do. Yeah, very simply, I'm just saying, what is the Harold family going to do about it? What, are, what is our part going to be in the mission of Jesus Christ here at Cornerstone? What is, the, what is the Houston family? What is your role in the mission of Jesus Christ at Cornerstone where God has placed you? What is the McLean mission? What is the Swearingen mission? And, and what, what, what is the Macbeth mission? And what is the Johnson mission? And what is the Ward mission? And what is the McAdoo mission? And let's just all get 
hand in hand on the wall here and figure out what God wants us to do and let's all do it family by family. Start at your own house. Start with your own heart. Get on your knees today in the house of God and say, God, you help me to align my heart with your mission. Remember, the goal here is to get self and get Jesus in the... God, help me to push self aside and to align my heart with your mission. And God, help me to be your disciple. Change my life. Transform me. God, I'm going to be found faithful. God, you can count on me. Now, I want you to know there's nothing more exciting. There's nothing more desperate than being alone. And there's nothing more exciting about being part of a team. There's nothing more exciting than being a part of a team that knows their mission and knows what their calling is and knows that they've got a, 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 a responsibility that makes a difference in the eternity of people's lives. That, that's something that feels right because it is right and you have aligned yourself with God's mission. There, I want to encourage you this morning that everybody can do something in the work of God. I'm just seeing these guys who are not brick masons, the perfume maker and some guy with his daughters over here on the wall, and yet they figured out they could do something. They probably don't have those girls lifting the big heavy stones. Okay, fine, but they've got them doing something, and it was important because it got listed in the, in the Word of God. I mean, it's almost like God saying, hey, somebody please note that these girls are here wrong with these guys. Please note that these uh, white-collar workers are getting their hands dirty along with the blue-collar worker. Somehow this is getting notated that everybody is doing something. All right, now that you've got that background, let me get to the principles this morning that Nehemiah 4 is going to teach us. And I think these are important because I, I need to encourage you. Because as soon as I get you fired up to do something for Jesus, anybody who decides, yes, our family is going to live for the Lord, you will certainly face opposition. This is a very, you may have never believed in spiritual warfare, but you decide to live for Jesus and you'll start believing in it because it's very real. So let me encourage you, expect resistance. When you decide to live for the Lord and get your family on mission, just know that, that dryers go out and transmissions go out. Just know that sickness comes just know that things are going to happen and it's going to feel like resistance even though you're trying to do right and that's exactly what's happening. It's not a joke. It's very real. Nehemiah 4 verse 1. The resistance comes in the form of a group of uh, uh, opponents here. When Sanballat, he's the opponent, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he became angry and he was greatly incensed. So here's how he played it out. He ridiculed the Jews. So mocking, ridicule, verbal abuse, insults, scoffing, things like this started coming at those who were building the wall. I mean, they're literally building and people are literally saying, you guys, what are you doing? They're literally catching verbal abuse. Now, if you're going to be followers of Christ, I can guarantee you that someone will make it difficult for you. Paul told his chief disciple, Timothy, expect this. Paul said to Timothy, in fact, 
everyone. It's not just you, Timothy. It's not just the Apostle Paul. It's not just Peter who talked a lot about opposition. Anyone who wants to live godly, live a godly life in Christ Jesus, they will be persecuted. Let's just make it practical. When a man says, listen, I'm going to love my wife, and I'm going to be faithful to my wife, listen, his buddies may chuckle at him. When a woman says, I'm going to be successful in my business career, and I'm going to take a good chunk of what God has blessed me with, and I'm going to give it to God's work, listen, some of your coworkers may make fun of that. They'll say things like, well, you've got to take care of number one. You've got to take care of yourself. You don't need to be giving away your wealth to, to, to the work of God. When a student says, uh, no, no thanks, I don't need the stolen answers I studied, I guarantee you they're going to make fun of you for that. You have to be careful how you answer it so you don't sound holier than thou. But I guarantee you when you try to do right, it's going to draw some laughs. It's going to draw some, some scoffs. Uh, the late uh, Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, who was a devout Christian, he said this, Devout Christians are destined to be regarded as fools in modern society. I mean, this is like the highest of the food chain in America, Supreme Court Justice. I mean, it's for life, right? You know what he said? Devout Christians are going to be regarded as fools in our modern society. We must pray for the courage to endure the scorn of a sophisticated world. We are fools for Christ's sake. Amen. That's true. Nehemiah 4.2. Here's what happens. In the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, Sanballat said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? In other words, they're going to get the temple up and running and, and reinstitute that. Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? The old KJV says, can they bring the stones? The old KJV says, will they revive the stones that are burned with the fire? KJV uses the word revive. Will they bring back to life those old stones from the heaps of rubble? I'm glad this is in the Bible because I want to talk about this. It's something important to our church. Not everything about the past is good. There are some things that need to be left there. But not everything about the past is bad. And so you've got to have some wisdom And you've got to have some discernment when you look at old things to know what's of value and what's not of value. Uh, In your mind, you know the Babylonians have destroyed Jerusalem now and they've burned it with fire. It's a bombed out city and it was lit on fire. Everything that was wood in the door frames and the windows and the houses lit lit up those uh, cities and then they knock the walls over. And so the stones, in my mind, I can see these piles of rubble. And I can see that a lot of these stones are charred black with the soot of the Babylonian siege fires. You know, some of the stones are broken. Uh, there's old, you know, cinders, uh, you know, what's left of that fire. It's just a big old mess. And they're looking at that. And the scoffers are saying, what are they going to do? They're going to resurrect 
<laughs> you know, the stones. They're going to revive the stones. They're going to resurrect this wall from this pile of trash that's out here right now. Let me answer that. And let me answer it in a way that will make sense to you who have a great respect for the past but are also a very modern church. Not everything from the past can be used right now. Now, I don't want to go off on a tangent, but Jesus even talked about this, and he said we can't put the new wine in old wineskins. What would happen? It'd just blow it up. Yeah, it, it couldn't work. You've got to put new wine in new wineskins. They can only stretch so far, and then they can't stretch any further. Not everything can be used. Not everything about the past is worth bringing into the future that we're trying to build. But, some of those old stones are still solid. Some of those old stones that are under some of these broken bricks, some of these big old blocks of limestone that used to be the wall of the city, some of the things from our parents and our grandparents are still solid. Some of those things are still things that you can build a life a family, and a church, and a community upon. Not everything's worth bringing into the future. Some of it needs to stay where it is right now, buried. But not everything from the past needs to stay in the past. Some of it needs to come with us into the next generation. I find that when I look at where religion is and where churches are, there are some foundational things like repentance that's an old-fashioned thing. It needs to come with us into the present and future generations. There are some things like prayer that is not outdated. There are some things like the love of God and commitment and honor and kindness and forgiveness and community and grace and family and marriage and the gospel. These are timeless things that are solid as they ever were meaningful as they ever were, and needed as they ever were in human society. And upon gospel, and upon love, and upon grace, and upon forgiveness, and upon family, and upon commitment, and upon marriage, you can still build a life worth living. We can build a community that you want to live in and your children will want to live in. Now, resistance will come, as I said, and some will try to intimidate you out of following Christ. I can speak firsthand knowledge on this because many of my peers refuse to change because of the fear of their peers. They don't want the scorn that will come with doing what they know they should do. So they succumb to peer pressure and they will not, let, uh, will not lead their churches into the modern generation. Let me see if I can make it more applicable to all of us. The devil will have you fear any change that Christ is bringing in your life. If you're fearful because Christ is trying to transform you to be more like him, that fear you're feeling is not from God. Uh, God's trying to transform your life, which is another word of saying change you, to be more like Jesus Christ. So don't be afraid to leave some things in the past. Some things need to be left there. Conversely, you're not being silly and you're not being old-fashioned if you want to hold on to some of the things that your parents valued. 
Both are true. And we need to find that balance in our own lives, in your marriage, in our congregation, as a covenant community of families. It's okay to value some old things. Okay? It's okay to leave some old things right where they are in the 1950s. Okay? Both are true. And what you realize then is that we're going to have to have very uh, open ears and hearts to listen to God's voice, to know which things to leave in the past, right? And to know which things we need to take with us into the next generation. And you might even be saying, well, pastor, I'm not trying to build a wall. How does this apply to me? No, you're trying to do something way more important than Nehemiah and his people did. They're just trying to build a stinking old wall. You're trying to transform people's lives and make disciples for Jesus Christ. That's way more important. You're trying to build a Christian. You're trying to reproduce another follower of Jesus Christ, which in my opinion is way more important than laying bricks. So don't think that it's not applicable. It's very applicable. And when we're trying to make disciples, I just need to tell you freshly that Satan opposes what we are doing at Cornerstone. And discouragement is his go-to weapon of choice. So when discouragement's coming at you, know from where it is coming, okay? Nehemiah 4, verse 3, Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, he's at the side of the scoffer, says what they are building, even a fox climbing on it would break down their wall of stone. Now both of these guys are using similar language in mocking the Jews, and they keep saying they're going to build their little wall, the little fox is going to come and push it over. Here's what I want you to see the Jews who are building the wall didn't see it as their wall. The enemies say, I'm going to knock down your wall or your walls, you're never going to get this, your, your wall built. The people who are building the wall don't see it as their wall. The people who are building the wall see it as God's wall. They see themselves there by divine commission of God as immigrants to rebuild Jerusalem, as God's people doing God's mission, and if Nehemiah, God's appointed governor and leader, says this is the first step, build the wall, then it's not our wall, it's God's wall. Now I want you to apply this thinking to your life today. Susan and I see our home as God's home. Susan and I see our life as God's lives. And I know you feel the same way. We are to see our church this morning as the Lord's church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, will not overcome it. What I'm saying to you is there's a lot of business owners here this morning. Listen, rededicate your business to God and let Him build your business. Why? Because it's His business now. Uh, I was having a, a Chick-fil-A. You guys have this picture from Chick-fil-A? I was having a number four, four count, mac and cheese instead of fries, side of kale crunch, just to keep my conscience clear, <laughs> buffalo sauce to put in the mac and cheese. Learned something today, didn't you? That's worth coming for. Sriracha to dip the chicken in. 
And while I was enjoying my feast, I looked over at the wall, and I was just reading the mission statement to glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that's been entrusted to us, to have a positive influence on all who come into contact with Chick-fil-A. You say, well, if I give my business to the Lord and dedicate some of my income to the Lord, I don't know how I'm going to make ends meet. Seems to be working out pretty good. Say, well, if I'm closed on Sunday, I lose one-seventh of my revenue. Seems to be working out pretty good. Uh, I get in the line. It's wrapped around the building. The line's wrapped around the building, so I drive past that one and drive over to that one. Line's wrapped around that building. You know, so I think if they built a third one between that one and that one that are less than a mile apart, the line would be wrapped around the building of that one. Seems like God's building his business very nicely. You say, well, those people are getting wealthy. Those people give millions to the cause of Christ. Millions to the cause of Christ. Some of our friends personally coach many of the Chick-fil-A franchise owners, especially the ones at the original place in Atlanta. Listen, they're incredible Christian people doing a great work for the Lord, one chicken strip at a time. And they see themselves as this is what we can do for God. Food is essential. Make it good. Let people enjoy it. Take the wealth God's given you and put it in the work of the Lord. I'm just saying this this morning. Maybe this morning is a time where we can all rededicate our lives to being God's disciples and say, God, build my life. I am yours. God, this is our church. We're going to get on our knees this morning at the end of the service and have a time of prayer. We're going to rededicate our church to the Lord and say, Lord, we're reminding ourselves this morning that this is your church and you will build your church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And God, when we say your church, maybe we need to change our language because every time you say church, you just think of building. Maybe we need to say, Lord, our congregation of people, Lord, this group of families and individuals, we rededicate ourselves to you this morning as your church as your people. So you're going to face some resistance. So here, let me tell you how to deal with this very quickly. Respond with prayer first. Give you some practical principles now. Nehemiah 4.4. So when he's being scoffed, Nehemiah is famous for a quick, terse, pithy, one or two sentence prayer. He's famous for this. And even when he's put on the spot, prayer, 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 and then he'll just step forward and talk. But you see see his prayers being recorded in the background. So these people are scoffing, and here's what the prayer sounds like. Hear us, God, we are despised. That's right to the point, isn't it? Turn their insults back on their own heads. I am rubber, they are glue. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Bounce off me and stick to you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he's right to the point with his prayer. Give them over as a plunder to the land. Three sentences. Prayer, boom, boom, boom. Nehemiah said his prayer. Nehemiah's immediate response to this conflict and resistance was prayer. Let me be transparent to you. When I have conflict and resistance come in my life and difficulty, my immediate response is not always prayer. I say that to my discredit, my shame. When you have problems coming into your life, your first response is not always prayer. So we've got some work to do, right? We have to retrain ourselves. That when it's God's children, when conflict is coming, first response must be prayer. Uh, 
one of the, my dad's favorite verses in the New Testament, 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your anxiety on him, for he cares for you. Listen, when you're bombarded with, with these things coming into your life, immediately give them to the Lord. And when I start talking this way, I hear a lot of people say to me, but pastor, I, I don't really know what to say. Okay, that's fair. Even I, sometimes when I'm, especially when I'm overwhelmed, don't have the words. This, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to tell you something about yourself this morning. If you get ready to pray when things are happening, especially in moments of being overwhelmed, and you feel, I don't have the words, you're not broken, you're normal. That's the way all of us feel in those moments. Listen, in the worst calamities, I've got the fewest words. When tragedy strikes with someone, I don't always know what to say. Sometimes I just go and stand and cry with them. And you know what? Sometimes that's enough. You say, well, I don't really know what to say. John Bunyan is probably ancient guy. We're talking about 1600s now. He's one of the most read Christian authors in the history of the world. This old guy said this. In prayer, it's better to have a heart without words than words without heart. So rather than, oh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I, it, we don't need that. When, when crisis comes to our life, sometimes we just need to get on our knees and say, God, I don't have the words. So I'm just going to let my heart connect with yours for a few minutes until words come. And linger for a while until words come. And if words don't come, then God, you know <laughs> You know what I'm dealing with. God knows your heart. Don't have to always word your prayer properly. Just let your heart pour out to God. That's enough. He's not your critic judging your English essay. He is your loving father caring for a broken child who's hurting. Your kids <laughs> come to you with... You know what I'm saying. Don't you as a parent know how to take <laughs> and translate that into your hurt, aren't you, baby? I hear you. I hear you. Show me where it hurts. And they just point and you kiss it. That's parenting. And that's the way your father can do with you spiritually as well. He, you just come to him crying and all of your blubbering. He can help you sort it all out. God knows your heart. Psalmist said this, Psalm 34, 17, The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. If you are hurt by someone, don't go to social media. Please, let's mature. We are not all 14-year-olds here. For those of you who are be 14, God love you. We'll tolerate you till you're 16. For the rest of you who are beyond that, come on, guys. Grow up. James, the Lord's brother, said this. Is any among you in trouble? Let them tweet. Let them post. No. Listen, when that crisis happens or you're opposed or you're hit with bad news or, or, listen, let them pray. 
Go to the Lord first. Just a few verses later, the Lord's brother said that there are some times in your life when you're not going to find closure and move forward until you pray with your church community. So we always think, well, I'm going to get alone and deal with this sin in my life or this problem, and I'll get over here in my prayer closet and confess that alone privately. But yet I don't ever seem to be making any progress. Maybe it's something that isn't going away because you haven't confessed it in this way. James 5.16 says, confess your sins to each other. The Catholics may have had something right and the Baptists may have had something wrong. I'm just saying. There's something biblical and therapeutic spiritually about praying with a leader who will not take it any further than this moment and saying to that leader, I've just got something I can't seem to put in the past. It's like one of those old burnt things I need to leave back there and I can't leave it back there. It still is haunting me and I don't know whether I'm forgiven and I don't know how God feels about me and I don't know, you know, it's just there. It's like baggage I keep carrying. Maybe we've not been able to let it down because we haven't followed the prescription of Scripture. Find a leader, kneel with them at an altar, say, God, I confess that I've done this and I confess it before a spiritual leader. God, let it be in the past from this moment and forevermore under your blood, forgotten, forgiven, and God, give me the lightness of being now to let the luggage go and move forward into a new life. You say, well, that's not my thing. My thing is I'm dealing with some sickness. Same thing. Maybe you're dealing with chronic sickness because we've not followed the prescription of God and got on our knees with an elder or a deacon or a leader of the church and said, will you pray over me? I want to put this in my past, but it's something that I keep dealing with. Now, God will not heal everything. We know that from the Apostle Paul, who had some chronic issues for a reason. But God will heal a lot of people. And you have not, because you ask not, so why don't we ask? You say, well, I just hate this crappy job I've got. Quit being miserable and pray down a new job. You say, well, I hate my boss. Pray him a transfer. You say, my car is no good. Pray down a better car. Listen, I'm just saying, prayer is a tool in your toolbox that is underutilized. Most of our prayer tools, if we were to look at them, they're, 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 they're not well-worn with use. They still got the tags on them. You know, Let, let's use those tools that God has given us to make our lives what God wants them to be and really what we want them to be. In this invitation, there will be deacons and elders here to pray with you. I want you to uh, use them. Use them for their God-given purpose to help you find peace and you find success as you move forward. Let me, on this resistance issue, give you one little twist. Resistance can have positive benefits for our lives. I'll say it this way. God uses the presence of opposition in our lives to show us the power of God through prayer. I'll say it a different way. Had it not been for some serious trials, I wouldn't have learned how to pray. Let me say it to you a different way. Had it not been for some emergency rooms and hospital visits, you wouldn't have learned how to pray. God teaches a lot to us through the trials that we're going through. 
And prayer, here's the big takeaway, should be the first response when we encounter opposition and difficulty. Listen carefully. So everybody in this room this morning, let's all work together to replace complaining with prayer. Now this is our big, one of our big goals this week. Is when you and I get ready to complain this week about whatever it is we want to complain about. That we're going to stop in that moment and whatever we were just about to complain about, we're going to pray for it instead. I hate this Texas way. Okay, we'll pray for something else. You know, I hate my spouse. Okay, we'll pray for, you know, I don't know. An early death. I don't know what to tell you. Let me give you a couple of quick things before we close. Here's a great principle from Nehemiah chapter 4. Resist the urge to stop. Let me move quickly right here. But Susan and I used to run a lot when we were not 50. Uh, when we were in our 30s, we, we ran a lot, uh, even into our 40s. Had an in, in, injury that kind of uh, uh, killed the, the long-distance running for us. We used to run 5Ks all the time, 10K here and there, half marathon here and there. And, and we used to run a lot. I'm not a great runner, don't love running. I always felt good after I ran, though, I can tell you that. Uh, here's the key to running. Here's Bobby's. Tip for Bobby's running. Just one more block. That's my key. You say, how did you run all those miles? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles. How? Just one more block, Bobby. You can just go one more block. Then maybe I'll let you rest. And when I got to the end of the block, I said, you know what? Bobby, you go another block, can't you? Big baby. Suck it up. One more block. All right. And before you know it, that's one mile down. And before you know it, that's two miles down. Before you know it, it's three miles down. Uh, Let me tell you the key to staying with something. Go to an organized fitness class. Uh, I go to some of those. uh, Letty's a beast. Uh, Her and Susan are monsters in those classes. Every once in a while, they'll drag me to one of those organized classes, and I just think I'm about to die. (laughs) But I'll look over there, and there's Susan and Letty and Jessica Webster, and they're not dying. And I'm like, well, if these girls aren't dying, surely I can live through this another few minutes. And we all survive somehow. Uh, Crystal Stuckey and Jenny Weatherby in these last few months have turned me on to HIT, to high-intensity training, time deck, not, not, you know, 12 reps, 3 sets, instead... Push-ups for one minute, many as you can do. Jump rope for a minute. Sit-ups for a minute. So here's what I've tried to retrain my brain. I can do anything for a minute. It hurts. I'm doing lunges with dumbbells. You say, I can't do anymore. I can do anything for a minute. I can't hold this another. Yeah, you can do anything for 60 seconds. Come on, big baby. Quit your crying. Now, I want to say to you, when it comes to your marriage, parenting, coming to church on Sunday, your prayer life, your Bible reading, guys, group exercise class right here, we're all getting it done. Stay with us. You can do anything for a few minutes. Use the positive peer pressure to stay in community. And I want to say to those who are watching and you've been out of community for a year or two, this is the reason you're struggling. 
because you're not in the community. You're consuming a product of online, which we're going to give you, but it's not a substitute for being here in the exercise class and being a part of the positive influence in the room. You're saying, I don't know if I can do this this week. Yes, you can. Say, I don't know if I can stay with my spouse any further. Yeah, you can. And I can hook you up with some other people in this room who've done it and who, who have pushed through and have been successful in it. Resist the urge to stop. Some of our faithful people are sitting here this morning. You need to get back on the discipleship horse and make some disciples, okay? And I know what you're saying. You're saying, Pastor, I tried to lead a discipleship group and it fell apart. My disciples, you know, wouldn't go forward or whatever. Okay, great. Try again. And I want to say it to you in this loving way. Leading is what makes you a leader. Leading is what makes you a leader. Paul told his generation, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This is not a waste of time. This is the thing that really, really matters then there's another principle here the principle of doing your part this is uh, something i alluded to earlier nehemiah 4 9 but we prayed to our god and we posted a guard day and night to meet the threat let, let me just put this principle out there real quickly not everything in your life is waiting on god you're waiting on god to give you a better job to make you healthy you're waiting on god to uh, you know turn the situation right you're waiting on god I find that most of the things that I think I'm waiting on God for, God is waiting on me for. There's a very real aspect. Part of the Christian life is spiritual and part is very practical. Okay? And those two work together to make your life what it needs to be. We are going to ask God to protect us. Amen? We hired a security guard. You say, what's with that? Well, it's not lack of faith, I can tell you that. It's common sense. It's the practical side. Much of my life and your life falls into the same kind of pattern. Let me give you some examples. If you're asking God for a job, you realize you've got to get off the couch, right? You've got to go out there and put in the time pounding the pavement, putting in the applications, doing the interviews, prepping for an interview, writing a great re a resume, getting some, some personal reference. You've got to do your part. If you're asking God to bless you financially and help your family grow financially, you've got to start tithing. And you've got to start operating on sound fiscal principles in your family. You can't be a spendthrift and say, God, I thought you'd bless us financially. Those things don't go together. If you're asking God for health, you've got to put down the ho-hos. And you're going to have to go to the gym. And, and I would do that. I, even if you've got the ho-hos, I would go ahead and say this morning, go ahead and pray and get, ask God to give you health because you'll get under conviction now while you're praying. And you'll say, okay, God, I'm going to go sign up this week. Listen, if you're asking God for wisdom and direction in your life, then you have to seek wisdom and direction by getting yourself into the Word of God and letting it affect how you make decisions. This morning, if you're going to ask God to forgive you of your trespasses, then you're also going to have to forgive people who have trespassed against you. In other words, if you're asking God for friends, maybe you need a good friend. 
then you're going to have to do your part and be a friendly person. If you're asking God to help you mature as a disciple, then you're going to have to be faithful to the discipleship process and let someone speak into your life. Sometimes wonderful, beautiful, easy things, but sometimes difficult conversations that we need to have with our disciples. All right, now here's my favorite of the morning. Nehemiah's principle of decluttering your life, verse 10. Meanwhile, the people said, the strength of the laborers is giving out, and there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Well, I get it. There's so much rubble laying everywhere, nobody can, can even walk. Nehemiah couldn't even walk around the walls to assess the city. And they said, we're just frustrated with all the junk and rubble everywhere. It's, uh, it's frustrating, it's humbling, it's dirty. This is a hot, dirty job. Okay, here's the principle. All of our lives collect clutter. Uh, our lives are like your closets and your garages. They just naturally collect stuff, don't they? Go ahead, you can be honest. You're among friends this morning. I've seen some of your garages. There's no cars in there. Your life is like your garage or your closet. It needs to be decluttered regularly. And you say, okay, once I get it clean, I'll be done, right? No. It'll get cluttered again over time. It has to be regularly decluttered. Now, from a very practical point of view, uh, spiritually, I want to say this. You need to sort through some of the emotional clutter that has built up in your life in the past. And you need to get it out and discard the hurt and discard the clutter out of your life and get some of this headspace cleaned up. We need to sort through the spiritual clutter of unconfessed sin this morning. Man, unconfessed sin will clutter up the inside of your life like that junk drawer that never goes away. And you've got to get on your knees and say, God, I've got to get this out of my life. God, I've got to let this go. I've got to wash this under the blood. God, I need this gone. It's cluttering up my whole life. Maybe we need to de declutter just the bad habits and the laziness that creeps into all of our lives. Discouragement comes into our lives when we see disorder and we see no way forward. If you can't see a way forward because of all the junk in your life, you're going to get discouraged. I'm trying to help encourage you on the way forward now because it's very hard to have hope in clutter. It's become therapy for Susan and I. Just every so often to get a black trash bag and go to the closet and just start working through the mess. You'll find it very therapeutic spiritually as well emotionally as well it's like that stone issue though now listen to me carefully you're going to have to get on your knees and say god give me discernment to know what's of value that i need to hold on to and what's rubbish that i need to let go of holy spirit give me ears to hear you and have wisdom to know what needs to leave my life and what, need, what I need to hold on as, as valuable in my life. And honestly and openly get on our knees this morning and say, God, I'm willing to roll up my sleeves. And I'm willing to do the difficult, unglamorous work of repentance 
and, and confession and removal of things in my life, reprioritization of things in my life. It's dirty, it's unglamorous, it's difficult, but God, I'm willing to do it to get my life back on your mission and get you at the center focal point of my life. Whatever it takes, God, I'm willing to do that. Let me give you our last principle this morning, and that's focus your mind on Jesus. They were afraid. And Nehemiah's cure for their fear is in verse 14. After I looked things over, I, I stood up and I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of these scoffers. Don't be afraid of them. Instead, what? Remember? So here's my prescription to you this morning. If fear is a part of your life, whether it's fear about your health, fear about tomorrow, fear about the country, fear about war, fear about, fear about anything. If fear is a major issue in your life, here's Nehemiah's prescription for you. Remember the Lord. Take your focus off of your fear and put your focus on the Lord. And it will alleviate the pressure of the fears that you have in your life. Now, as I was talking through this, I thought, well, that doesn't maybe help everybody if they don't know what, really what I'm saying. So let me give you three ways to apply this. Focus on God's goodness. If you're dealing with fear in your life or pressure or difficulty, focus, don't focus on the crisis. Focus your mind on God's goodness. The psalmist said, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. If you're struggling with fear, then this week focus your mind on how good God has been to you in the past. How good he's been to people through thousands of years. Do you think anything's going to change about that? God's still going to be good to us tomorrow. God is good and you can focus on that and know that his goodness is going to come into your life. The second thing I would say to you about how to focus your mind on the Lord is focus on his presence. You realize God never leaves you. You're born again in this New Testament church age. Holy Spirit has taken up residence in you, a living temple of God. God is never more than just this far from you. He's right here in the living temple of God, inhabiting with His Spirit. God is present with you. So Moses tried to tell this to Joshua several times. Joshua says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. That means when you go off to work tomorrow, you go off to school tomorrow, you go off to vacation tomorrow, it doesn't matter where you are on planet earth, it doesn't matter where you are in time or eternity, God is with you. And he will never leave you. And he will never forsake you. So when fear enters, you just focus your mind and say, God, I know you're here. Whatever I'm dealing with, you're here helping me deal with it. And I think the third way to overcome this in focusing your mind on the Lord is to focus on God's strength. When we are discouraged, we feel really weak when things happen. Especially when sickness comes or some circumstance you can't control. You feel weak and you feel powerless. So we need to focus on God's strength, His power. Psalm 27 verse 1 has been a big help in my life. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Old KJV says, The Lord is the strength 
of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? If your life is filled with fear and anxiety, you just turn your focus on God's goodness, His presence here, and His strength, and let the fears alleviate themselves. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I'm going to ask you just, you've been sitting for about 50 minutes now, I'm going to ask you just to stand quietly and stretch your legs. Move about as little as possible for a few moments so I give you some direction here. Jeremy's going to come and play uh, some invitation response prayer time music for us. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Here's what our invitation is all about this morning. It's a time of rededication. My life is the Lord's. My business is the Lord's. This church is the Lord's. And maybe that's the prayer you need to be praying this morning. Maybe this morning it's a moment where you need someone to pray with you. James is very clear on this, whether it's about a sickness or about praying for a child or praying for a family or praying over some unconfessed sin that you need to have closure with, whatever it is. Sometimes you need to pray with a leader. The deacons and elders are already moving their way here to the front and they're here. If you want to pray with someone this morning, you just come and tap one of them on the shoulder and say, come and pray with me. They know exactly how to minister to you. The altars are open to you right now. If the Lord's speaking to your heart, there's been a lot said this morning. What is your family's role? in the mission of Jesus Christ at your church here at Cornerstone. As God's been speaking to your heart, I want you to talk back to God. Now, maybe where you are, if that, that's fine, if that's your thing, but there's something about coming on bended knee and kneeling before your Creator and saying, God, you spoke to my heart about something this morning, and I think it's appropriate that I respond to you by acknowledging that. The altars are open to you right now. I want you to come and pray before the Lord. I want you to ask God to bless your family. Maybe you need to pray for your kids. Maybe some of you are contemplating being a very committed part of this church. Maybe this is that time where you come and wrestle with the Lord for just a moment and say, God, speak to me about where I need to put my family, how we can plug into this place. All over the room, Christians are praying. Come and join us. Come and pour out your heart to the Lord. You might even say, God, I don't know what the, I don't know, I don't have the words. I don't know what to say. It's okay. It's better to have a heart that's tender than all the right words. God can hear the cries of a broken heart even when the words don't come to your mouth. He can hear the cries of a troubled mind and He can answer those cries even without verbal prayers going up. A lot was said this morning about the work of the
people on the mission of God, but there's something you don't have to work for, and that's salvation. It is the gift of God to anyone who believes on Jesus Christ. If you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ and made that prayer from your heart that says, Lord Jesus, I receive you as my Savior and I ask you to forgive me of my sins, I want to challenge you. Come, come and pray that this morning. Maybe you're a chronic complainer. I'd never call you that, but I'm self-assessing a little bit with you, and maybe that's a part of your life. It's just easy for complaints to roll out. This week, why don't you make a commitment before God this morning and say, God, I'm going to try to replace complaining with prayer this week. Rather than complaining about my family or my job or whatever, God, I'm going to try to make that a prayer point this week. God, help me because that would be a great blessing to my life. For Christians all over the room, we have a young church. You're, you're a young father, a mother. You've got children in the children's program or teens sitting over here. Listen, I, I'm praying for you. I want you to know that because it's hard. It's hard to know what things to leave in the past. And it's hard to have discernment. We're going to have to listen to the Holy Spirit, guys, ladies. We're going to have to trust that God will tell us what things to bring forward and what things to leave behind. And I think he'll give us some clarity on that. You may be struggling with your parenting and trying to leave some things that were broken about your parents' model. Okay, leave them in the past. That's fine doesn't mean you disrespect your parents but take the best of what your parents gave you and bring it into the to the present that, that's very appropriate father we bow before you this morning one one big family of God made up of a lot of little families and individuals here this morning. And God, you have knit our hearts and our minds together through the Word of God this morning about all of us starting right at our own home and within our own family and focusing our attention on the mission of God, keeping you first in our lives and in our families. God, we've heard that message and we've responded this morning. God, we realize opposition will come. We know how to deal with that now. Prayer, we're going to listen to your voice. We're not going to, we're going to resist the urge to stop. We're just going to keep going forward. Lord, if we failed, we're going to re-engage again. Because leaders lead. And God, you've called every person in this room to make disciples and be a leader. We're, we're going to do it. God, you help us. We've dedicated ourselves to this mission. God, we need your, your power. We need your grace. God, this morning, people all over the room have gotten some clarity, maybe gotten rid of some clutter, 
And God, that may take all week this week for you just to show us things in our life that are clutter and we're just tripping over them and getting frustrated. God, help us to get them out. God, you help us to, to do that. God, thank you this morning for caring so much about our lives that you would bring us a message with some very practical things we can do to be better people this week. God, I pray that you'd take complaining from our lips and instead put prayer on our lips and praise on our lips. God, we are your children and we know, Father, that you are always attentive to our cry. Father, bless your people as I dismiss them now. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to leave you this morning with one of the verses I just read as a benediction from Joshua. It's a great words to go home to. Joshua chapter 1 verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong. Cornerstone, be strong. Cornerstone, be courageous. Cornerstone, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. God bless you and have a great week. I'll see you next.